And it is another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live at Joy620 or to the podcast at investinghope.com or iTunes or Google Play app. Tune in wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show today. We have a lot to talk about, a lot of things going on in the country. And one of those being the Republican National Convention. And so last week we touched on a little bit about the Democratic National Convention. We talked about uh, Joe Biden naming uh, Kamala Harris as his running mate and what that looks like. And we, we talked about the convention. And I'll be honest, the convention last week left a lot to be desired from a uh, viewer standpoint. And, and I get it. You know, the base is going to vote for who they're going to vote for. That's just the reality on both sides of the aisle. You have uh, the base will vote for a tree if it has the right letter beside its name. That's just the fact of the matter. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are these conventions convincing the those in the middle, those on the fence, those, you know, people always say every year, I don't know how anybody is undecided at this point. The reality is there are people out there that are undecided. They don't know which direction they're going to go, who they're going to vote for. You know, is the economy going to bounce back or not after COVID? Is COVID going to go away? Uh, do we want more government uh, programs, more government involvement? If so, they may lean uh, left. Do we do we want less government involvement? They may lean right. You know, so the, the questions are out there. And so there are folks that are undecided. There are folks that are watching this convention just like they do every four years and are trying to figure out who to vote for. There are some that are saying it's the lesser of two evils. And, and you know, I don't like either of the, the candidates, but I'm going to vote for one of them. Then you have some folks that will say, I don't like either of the candidates. I'm going to vote for third party or are you, you know, what we saw last week is you saw Governor John Kasich speak, uh, speak at the Democratic National Convention. He's a Republican. And he spoke and said, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. You had former Senator Jeff Blake, uh, who has been a Republican, who said, came out and endorsed Joe Biden. This week already, we, we have seen uh, last night, we saw last night being Monday, the first night of the convention, we saw uh, a rep from Georgia who is a Democrat, African-American uh, from Georgia come out and endorse and speak on behalf of Donald Trump. And so you're going to see that play out. You're going you're gonna to see both parties try to find people within the other party who are going to vote for them because, it, you know, it's a big splash. It looks good on camera. Uh, and speaking of looking good on camera, last week I argued on this show and on the Between Sunday show that, that I host on Wednesday afternoon or, yeah, Wednesday afternoons with uh, my pastor, Jason Hayes, we talked about the convention, and I just said from a viewer standpoint, from the aesthetics, it just didn't, it didn't look good to me. And, and I know that's superficial, but the reality is we have all gotten used to uh, streaming. We've all gotten used to watching things on our computers, on our TVs. And so if you're going to do that and not have a crowd in the audience then you better put some money into the, the actual production. And so what we saw last week, in my opinion, was some not great production. Uh, and, and, and so you, you had what looked like Zoom calls at, at, at times, and then you had people in all different places. Uh, and, and you had comedians last week trying to tell jokes and do stand-up, but there's nobody in the crowd to laugh. And so I don't know if you've ever tried that, it's hard to be funny, even if it is funny. It's hard to be funny if no one is laughing. Even if people are laughing at home, no one heard that. 
And so sometimes what happens is those jokes fall flat and they don't work. And that's what we saw last week. What we saw last night at the first night of the convention was amazing production. I will say that. And, and I heard this morning that uh, the folks producing this convention are the same folks that produced The Apprentice. And if you remember, there was a man that uh, was the, the main character in The Apprentice, the number one TV reality show for a long time, and that is our, currently our president, President Trump. And so uh, you can say all you want about the president. One thing he does understand is making good TV. And so last night what you saw was good TV. You saw Nikki Haley speak, did a great job. Nikki Haley, uh, just, you know, amazing story. Governor of South Carolina, uh, then was ambassador to the UN, and I think will be uh, either on top of the ticket or a part of the next ticket in 2024. Uh, you saw uh, a number of folks speak. You saw Herschel Walker speak, who uh, maybe you're familiar with him because you're an SEC fan. He played football at the University of Georgia, played in the NFL. He's an MMA fighter. Uh, just a beast, and he talked about his relationship with Donald Trump for 37 years. He's known the man for 37 years. And, and so it was interesting hearing him speak. You had, uh, I believe his name is uh, Representative Vernon Jones. I think that's his name. I know it's Vernon uh, from Georgia, who's the Democratic rep who came out and said he's endorsing President Trump. Uh, you, you had a number of folks speak last night, did a really good job. Charlie Kirk, who is a, a part of a young uh, kind of the younger conservative movement coming up. Uh, he spoke, but all of those folks, uh, this was the interesting part, except for Herschel Walker, I'm pretty sure all of the other folks spoke from the same stage. So what that did was it, it gave a uniform look to the night. It made it out as if it was a normal convention because they all spoke from the same podium. They had the same background. And since there was nobody in the crowd, nobody was applauding or standing up or making comments. So it really made it an intimate conversation between the speaker and the audience at home. And it was done well, handled well. Uh, and and it, I think from, from last night, very good. I will say the highlight of last night. Of course, President Trump was also a part of a, a panel. He had some people from around the country, normal people, not politicians, kind of sit down and, and talk about uh, what 2020, what, what the last four years have looked like for them in terms of tax cuts and, and different things. And so that was a, a good thing. One thing Trump is doing that, that has not been done in the past is he's going to make an appearance every night in the convention. Where in years past, you kind of leave that for the last night. They give a big speech. I'm sure he'll still give a big speech the last night. But, but this time around, every night, he's going to play some kind of role. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. Again, he knows TV. He knows what he's doing. And so we'll see how that plays out. But my favorite part of the night, my favorite speaker of the night, a man I think will be running for president in 2024. And I'm telling you, uh, uh, a Tim Scott and a Nikki Haley ticket would be amazing. But that man is Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina. My goodness. Uh, National Review wrote about him and wrote about the speech. Uh, and, and this is what they said. The evening belonged to Tim Scott. More than any speech in recent Republican history, his address last night revived and redeployed the spirit of Ronald Reagan. Now that is a big compliment. A spirit that has been dormant in the GOP during the Trump era. 
The politics of doom-mongering and, quote, American carnage, which dominated most of the evening, gave way during his speech to a story of optimism. The rhetorical tact of the GOP this election cycle has been to present the opposition as an imminent threat and danger to the American way of life. But Scott presented the Democrats not so much as threatening as simply unappealing. His message was not, quote, the barbarians are at the gates, but it was instead, why would we choose the thin gruel the Democrats are offering over the bountiful feast of American freedom that our ancestors toiled to prepare for us? This message was doubly powerful because it was directed especially at African Americans. You see, Tim Scott is an African American Republican from the state of California. He's a senator in Washington. Tearing up as he spoke about the life of his grandfather, Scott celebrated the fact that his family went from, quote, cotton to Congress in one lifetime. You see, Tim Tim Scott told the story of his granddad, a granddad that was pulled out of third grade to go pick cotton. And that same granddad would have been 99 years old today, went from the cotton field to seeing his grandson elected to the Senate. Think about that, folks. That is the American dream. The story of racial progress that the senator told during his speech is a radically different alternative to the one offered up from others. Instead of uh, people rising up against an inherently evil state to expunge the politely uh, the, the policy that enslaved them, Scott's story is one in which the better angels of our national nature are continually bringing light into the darkest recesses of the American soul with the passing of the years. He is living proof of his racial progress as he proclaimed in his speech last night a majority white electorate in Charleston, South Carolina. The crucible of the Confederacy sent Scott, a black son of a single-parent home, to Congress. Perhaps the most interesting line in the speech, however, came when Scott was speaking about the man who mentored him. And he said this, he said, He taught me that having an income could change my lifestyle, but creating a profit could change my community. How many conservative politicians make this rhetorical connection between capitalism and community, between profit and social solidarity? This is an economic parlance that speaks of entrepreneurship and localism as the twin propellers of human as well as economic capital in America. It's manifested in Opportunity Zones initiative that that Scott touted in his speech, and it's a welcome alternative to the common good capitalism that politicians uh, are often peddling. In a way, this speech was similar to the one Reagan gave at the Republican nominating convention for Barry Goldwater in 64. It wasn't nearly as good as that speech. You, you can count the speeches in American history that were, on, uh, that were on one hand. But there's a similar impression left on the viewer that while this message is exactly right for the moment, the current nominee won't be able to deliver on it. You just can't pour Tim Scott wine into Trumpian wineskins. The president has neither the optimism nor the credibility on racial issues nor the competence to herald mourning in America. And see, that's the difference. But, but you have to be impressed with the speech and the moment that Tim Scott had last night. Now, now, what he did was he also said the direction he believes we need to go is four more years of the current administration. And what Tim Scott has said and, and proven in his record is he's willing to have the tough conversations. He's willing to lift the heavy weights. He's willing to push for justice reform. Now, now you don't have to think too far back, but Tim Scott 
authored the justice reform bill that came out not too long ago that the president signed. And many on the left argued that, that he was being used as a token. They didn't even want to believe that Tim Scott wrote the bill, that he was the main player in the bill. But the reality is he, he was and is. He talks about his own experience as a black man in Washington, D.C. as a senator and being stopped by Secret Service and, and other cops multiple times acting as if he shouldn't be there. You see, he has real-life experience. But he also has real-life experience when it comes to the American dream. And so last night, what Tim Scott gave was an incredible speech that pointed to optimism. He actually said the next century will be, should be, better than the last there. There's optimism there. Tim Scott has done it. He's achieved it. And mark my words, today, on August 25th, 2020, Tim Scott's going to be a player in politics for a long time and may very well be a president to these United States. And so it's going to be interesting to see what the future holds for people like Tim Scott, for people like Congressman Dan Crenshaw out of Texas. You see, one thing that we're going to see this week that we didn't see last week if I may use a sports analogy, is we're going to see a deep bench. And what do I mean by that? What, what we saw last week was we saw former President Bill Clinton speak. We saw former President Jimmy Carter speak. We saw a former presidential candidate John Kerry speak. We saw former presidential candidate and Senator Hillary Clinton speak. Sure, we saw AOC. We saw some younger folks. AOC had one minute in front of the cameras. One. You see, they don't have a deep bench. We saw that last week. What we saw, what we're going to see this week is there's a deep, deep, deep bench of conservatives that are coming up seeking to do what's right for this country. At least that's the hope and that's the plan. We'll talk more when we come back. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness. Still in your hands This is our confidence You've never failed us yet So yeah, so what we saw last night is complete contrast to what we saw last week at the Democratic Convention. And I get it. Like some of the folks listen to this show, uh, you, you know, you're the base of one or the other. I'm assuming probably... <laughs> of this week's, this week's convention. And so what we saw last week and what we're going to see this week is you're going to see one side of uh, the country saying, you know, if, if so-and-so wins the election, then you can kiss America goodbye. And the other side is saying the exact same thing about the other guy. And, and so where, where do we find ourselves in terms of logic and rational thought and, and normal conversations around this? And so I think it's important. I, I saw somebody uh, post this the other day about Joe Biden and his faith. And, and they were talking about his stance on abortion. And, and it, this goes to not just politicians. This goes to anybody. I've heard individuals, friends of mine, say, well, personally, I'm pro-life. 
personally, I wouldn't have an abortion. Now, now I'll stop right there and I'll just say most of the folks that have had abortions or participated in abortions probably would have said that about themselves as well. So we know that because we've had conversations with them. But they'll say things like, well, personally, I'm pro-life. But it's not up to me to, to legislate or push my agenda on someone else. Now, think about that phrase. Think about that statement. Personally, I'm this, but it's not up to me to do this. That, that's crazy talk. That's like saying, personally, I'm against police brutality, but it's not up to me to see any changes occur in our society. Personally, I'm against murder, but it's not up to me to decide on whether or not someone can murder somebody. Personally, I'm against drug addiction, but it's not up to me to, to pass laws that, or, or to, to advocate for laws that would curtail that. Personally, I'm against uh, you know, people robbing my house, but it's not up to me to, you know, to push my agenda and narrative on someone else. But we wouldn't say that about any other thing. I mean, goodness, just look at the mask discussions. I mean, we, we wouldn't say that about anything. But we say that when it comes to abortion. And what that is is a cop-out. And it is. And if you're listening to this and, and you feel like that's where you stand, personally, I'm pro-life, but I don't believe in legislative legislating uh, abortion or not, that's a cop-out. It plain and simple, that's what it is. And so I think it's important that we look at who is running for office. Who's on the ticket? So let's say, let's, I don't believe Joe Biden is personally pro-life, but let's say he is. Now, he's politically savvy. He's made decisions for the last 47 years based on politics, and, and, and uh, he's done very little. He, has, he doesn't have much of a record, has very little to show. He's a nice guy, apparently. You hear that a lot. Regular Joe but not much of a record. But one thing that he has done consistently up until about two years ago was fight for some restrictions on abortion. And so when he named Kamala Harris as his running mate, it's interesting to me because if I'm personally pro-life, if I'm personally pro-life, then I would want my running mate to also be at the very least personally pro-life but instead what you get with with Kamala Harris is you get one of the most pro-abortion candidates in the history of this country And, and here's just some things to point out abortion policy is just one of several areas in which California Senator Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris Joe Biden's running mate has sworn to abuse executive power to assert her preferences if Congress won't legislate as she liked her authoritarian instincts were frightening when she was running for president herself. And they're hardly any less frightening now that if she and Biden are elected, she will be just one crisis away from the presidency. Now, there's been articles written over at National Review and other places about Harris. But, but it's important that we point out that she is without question the most radically pro-abortion candidate to run for president or vice president in the history of this country. As a senator, Harris has co-sponsored the most aggressively pro-abortion piece of federal legislation ever introduced, the Women's Health Protection Act, which would override state restrictions on abortions in the last three months of pregnancy, well after fetal viability. 
The bill would invalidate any state law that prohibits, quote, abortion after fetal viability when, in the good faith, medical judgment of the treating physician, continuation of the, the pregnancy would pose a risk to the pregnant woman's life or health, end quote. According to reporting from John McCormick, the bill's sponsor have, have said that it does not distinguish between the mother's physical health and her mental health. Read in conjunction with the Supreme Court's ruling in, in Doe versus Bolton, defining maternal health as including, quote, all factors, physical, emotional, psychological, familia, uh, familial, and the person's age relevant to the well-being of the patient, end quote. The Women's Health Protection Act would invalidate any and all state-level protections for unborn children after the point of viability, indeed, up until birth. Harris, it is worth noting, seems to have little problem with allowing newborns to die of neglect should they survive an abortion procedure. She, was twice, she has twice voted against the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which would require doctors to provide the same care to infants who survive abortions as they would to any other newborn. Did you catch that? The, abortion, the Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act simply says, if a baby survives an abortion, they deserve the protections and rights of any other citizen in this nation. And she couldn't even vote for that. The legislation would also make it impossible for states to enact or enforce informed consent laws and waiting period requirements which have often been upheld by courts as permissible under our current abortion jurisprudence so much for federalism. But just in case that bill doesn't get through Congress, Harris has another plan that violates not only federalism, but the separation of powers. During a town hall last spring, Harris promised that her presidential administration would enact a regime of preclearance, blocking state laws that her Department of Justice deems contrary to Roe v. Wade. She said this, We cannot tolerate a perspective that is about going backward. And not understanding women have agency, women have value, women have authority to make decisions about their own lives and their own bodies. Apparently, she cares deeply about women, just not while they're growing inside of the womb. Harris justified her pro proposed program to use her executive authority to override the Democratic will and enforce Roe's anti-constitutional reasoning on the entire country. When asked in a New York Times candidate survey whether he'd require uh, preclearance for state abortion laws, Biden's campaign offered no response. He ought to be asked again. It isn't difficult to imagine that Biden, who has been moving steadily to the left on abortion for quite some time, and drastically so over the course of this campaign, will happily defer to his new running mate on the question. You see, last week, after or I guess two weeks ago, after Biden named Kamala Harris as his running mate. The same Kamala Harris who went after Joe Biden in a debate about race, called him a racist. The same Kamala Harris that said that the women that have accused Joe Biden of harassment or abuse, uh, that she believes those women was asked why she went so hard at, at him in the debate and now is able to run with him and tell the, the American people to vote for him. And her response to that question was, that was a debate. And then she started laughing. That was a debate. That's all she kept saying. It was a debate. It was a debate and we were debating. So what she's saying is she just do, does whatever she needs to do 
She said what she needed to say because she thought she would help it, help her in the polls, and it didn't. And so now, sure, I can be vice president, and that's what I'm going to do. So we're just supposed to discount the fact that she said not too long ago that Joe Biden was a racist and not too long ago that she believed his accusers. Now that's all gone and things of the past. And so they need to be asked these questions about abortion. They need to be asked these questions when it comes to life. And I hope and pray that they will very soon. I hope it's brought up in a debate, but we shall see. We'll be back. So as the conversation continues, hopefully you have learned some stuff in the first two segments. The third segment we're going to talk about is something that you may or may not be familiar with, uh, that Secretary Pompei, Mike Pompei, uh, put together a commission about a year ago or so um, to unalienable rights and, and what that looks like. So it's about human rights and, and, and all of that and trying to uh, set the bar for for what that looks like. We're going to talk about that here in a second. One thing I do want to point out uh, in tonight, if you're listening to this today, so let's uh, it's Tuesday, August 25th. If you're listening today, tonight at, at uh, around 8 or 8.30 Eastern Time, Abby Johnson is going to be speaking at the Republican Convention. Now, some of you may be going, well, who is Abby Johnson? We've had her on our show. Uh, we, we've had her... I've had her multiple times on this show. Uh, she is former director of Planned Parenthood. Uh, the movie Unplanned uh, was about her, if you watch that incredible movie. And, and so she is an amazing pro-life advocate. And, and she's a pro-life advocate that's actually worked on the other side and, and, and spent years uh, working inside of an abortion clinic. And the fact that she's speaking tonight specifically tells you about this administration's stance when it comes to life and abortion. And so millions will be watching and hearing a message from Abby Johnson about what abortion really is. And in an interview, she's already said, look, I, I, I get five or so minutes, five to seven minutes. Uh, I'm going to use this moment as a moment to point people to God, but also to point them to the truth of abortion. And, and so I, I encourage you to watch it. I hope, I hope folks that aren't pro-life watch it. I hope they hear what she has to say. Uh, it's important that, that they hear, and it's important that she's going to be heard in front of millions of people tonight uh, to give that message of life. And uh, I'm thankful for that. And, and I'm thankful that the administration and the party asked her to do that. So looking forward to hearing her tonight. Now let's get back to... Uh, this commission. So there's an article over at National Review, and I know I, I quote and talk about the National Review a lot. They just have their good stuff. It's good, good writers, write, uh, authors and uh, pieces that, that I would encourage you to go look at um, and important stuff. So there's a piece over there talking about uh, this commission. So the commission's first report fails to grapple with argu arguably the greatest human rights abuse of our age. 
So in July 2019, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the formation of a commission on unalienable rights created to offer guidance on human rights informed by both the founding documents of the U.S. and the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Last month, the commission released its first draft report, a consensus document approved unanimously by the 11 members of the commission. A diverse group of academic, academics and philosophers accomplished in the field of human rights. There is much to praise in the report, which properly grounds its conception of human rights in the natural law principles that undergird the American founding. In the realm of foreign policy, the report insists we must understand human rights as something inextricably linked to the understanding of freedom and human equality championed by the world's liberal democracies, the U.S. foremost among them. This effort to link human rights to the core principles of liberal tradition is a crucial one, especially in light of the progressive campaign to redefine, quote, human rights in a way that will advance left-wing policy goals. There has been a push among left-wing activists, for instance, to cloak radical agenda items such as expanding global access to abortion on demand or redefining marriage around the globe in the language of human rights. This is especially evident at the United Nations and international non-governmental organizations where ideologues increasingly wield the power to demand conformity with the progressive social agenda. Several UN commissions, for example, have spent the past few months delaying COVID-19 relief by requiring that every country accept the expansion of elective abortion as part of their aid packages. Did you hear that? So several UN commissions have been delaying getting COVID relief to certain parts of the world until they accept the expansion of elective abortion as part of their aid packages. So the folks that are saying, if we can just save one life, then we need to do it to protect against COVID are also the ones saying, we need more abortions. We need to end more lives in the womb. The article continues, progressive activists frequently boast, boast, bolster these efforts with the assistance of rights language, arguing that failing to allow, promote, and even facilitate elective abortion is a violation of human rights. These efforts are pervasive. Just last fall, the U.S. joined more than a dozen other countries in demanding that the U.N. cease calling abortion an international right in its policy documents, a call that unsurprisingly went unheeded. Far from being a human right, abortion is a clear assault on the fun fundamental dignity and right to life of every human being and the related right not to be unjustly killed. In light of the insidious and widespread campaign to advocate such a procedure under the guise of rights language, it is striking that the commission report almost entirely ignores the issue. The reasons for the omission are perhaps understandable. For one thing, the report's introduction notes that the commissioners, quote, are not of one mind on many issues where there are conflicting interpretations of human rights claims, including abortion. Because the report aimed to achieve unanimity, uh, let's see, a, a unanimous vote among the commission's 11 members, naming elective abortion as a human rights abuse may have been an impossibility. Quote, the commissioners, although we were often characterized in the press as being like peas in a pod, we are basically just like other Americans and have different views on, great, on the great issues that divide the country today. Mary Ann Glendon, who chaired the commission, tells National Review. What's more, as Glendon notes, the commission mandate was to, quote, to focus on principle, not policy formulation, end quote. And as a result, it did not seek to enter into debates about the application of human rights principles to current controversies. 
Quote, everyone has the right to life, and nobody disagrees about that principle. But if you go back to the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, they decided that the Universal Declaration would not and could not go into the implications of the right to life for issues like capital punishment, abortion, and euthanasia. There simply was no consensus among the nations about the implications of the principle. End quote. Such an approach may have been sensible for the sake of avoiding overly political debate, or in this case of social issues, risking the wrath of progressive activists in the abortion access lobby. It is disappointing, however, that a commission created by Pompeo, who has been willing to declare in, a, in his official capacity that abortion isn't a human right, would choose to sidestep what is, arguably, the most pressing human rights abuse of our age, especially at a time when abortion advocates are so intent on strengthening their advantage around the globe with the help of corrupted rights language. A firm statement to the contrary from a commission of this importance would have been particularly valuable. The commission has succeeded in creating a document that affirms the U.S. liberal tradition in its defense of unalienable rights, including the right to life, and that is a significant service as far as it goes. But in a larger sense, it was a missed opportunity, failing as it did to declare unequivocally that far from being a human right, abortion denies the most fundamental right to vulnerable, unborn human beings. So that's where we are. We live in a, a day and age where folks are willing to shut down the entire country. And they say if it'll save one life, if it'll save one life, they're willing to do that. And at the same time, in the same policies, in the same bills, in the same relief packages, they're seeking to put in elective abortion as a human right. And we need to get the pills to the people through their mailbox. They don't even have to go see a doctor. I was talking with somebody this weekend, and he asked what I did. And that's always an interesting conversation when I say I lead a nonprofit downtown, and then I go into what the nonprofit is. And uh, it was interesting. His words were, so you're like Planned Parenthood, uh, but you care more. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I guess we're, we're not an abortion clinic. I made that clear. But yes, we do care more. That, that's for certain. But it was interesting hearing him just make that, come to that conclusion on his own. And, and then as I went through some stats with him and, and talked about what, what folks are facing, his mind was blown. He had no idea. No idea what was going on. No idea what the abortion industry is allowed to do. No idea that there's even abortion pills. He didn't even know that was the truth. You see, everybody on that commission that I just talked about got their start in the same place. It doesn't matter if they have a PhD. It doesn't matter if they're Secretary of State. It doesn't matter if they're a politician, if they're a philosopher, if they're a liberal, if they're a conservative, if they're a Democrat or Republican or Green Party, if they're a tree hugger or not, if they're a hipster, if they're a vegan, if they're a car carnivore, if they're uh, somewhere in between. None of that matters because every single person you come in contact with, every single person you've ever laid your eyes on, Every one of them, from the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich, every single one of them, at one point in time, were, were growing inside of a womb. That's the truth. Every 
single one. That truth alone tells us what abortion is. It is the ending of an innocent life, period. Full stop. That's what it is. That's what we know it is. That's what science knows it is. That's what the Bible knows it is. That's what every rational human being knows it is because we all got our start at the same exact place. So to say that abortion is a human right is laughable in how wrong that statement is. Life is the right. That is our human right, is life. We'll talk more when we come back. For that kind of love, I don't understand. Oh, I can't comprehend. But all I know is I need you. I run to the Father, I fall into grace. I'm done with the hiding, no reason to wait. Look, I know that a lot of folks are, are like, well, you know, these conventions aren't must-watch TV. I don't want to watch the convention. I'll be honest, I didn't watch the convention. I didn't watch last week. I didn't watch last night. I'll probably watch Abby Johnson tonight. What I'm doing is that the, uh, the next day I'm just kind of going through clips, looking for highlights. Uh, but should we care? Should we pay attention? Yeah. Are, are these conventions designed to truly change minds? I don't think last week was, for sure. It's a little early to tell what this week's convention is designed to do, but last week's for sure was not designed to change minds. It was simply to uh, further the, the narrative about the current administration and why you shouldn't vote for the current administration. And so it was kind of preaching to the choir. It'll be interesting to see what this week's goal is, what the, the theme is. Of course, every theme of the convention is to get the, their guy elected or their girl elected. But there's also other themes and other narratives that are being pushed. And so it's going to be interesting. It's a little early to tell exactly what the goal is. Uh, but but I, did, did Biden get a bump from last week? I think, you know, yeah, you're going to, get a, you're going to always get a bump from the convention. Now, here's the difference. Here's my hot take. Typically, that bump is seven, you know, sometimes up to 10 points. I mean, Hillary saw a bump four years ago. I don't think you're going to see that kind of bump. Well, how do I know that? I I know that because where was the bar set last week? The bar was set because we saw this from commentators and political pundits when the convention was over. After Biden's main speech, it was, hey, he got through that speech without stumbling over anything. Uh, he, he read it well. He hit the points he wanted to hit. It was, a, you know, a decently written speech. But when the bar is simply to get through the speech and everybody cheers, that's a concern. If I'm a political strategist, that's a concern. If I'm watching the comments on Twitter and on social media about different things that are happening during the convention by people that are in my base, then I'm concerned. And that's what was happening last week. So enthusiasm matters around elections. What we know is it is pretty clear the enthusiasm behind the current president is stronger than it was. In terms of the base, 
the enthusiasm behind the current president is stronger today than it was four years ago. That's a good thing for the president. The question is, can Biden and Harris garner the same enthusiasm? Can they get people off their couch to vote? Can they get people to come out in November to vote? Cold weather, Thanksgiving's around the corner, pandemic is you know, still around. I don't know. I don't know. Now, then you got to factor in absentee ballots and you got to factor in mail-in voting that some states are doing. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens. But ultimately, ultimately, a president will be elected. It'll either be Joe Biden or it'll be Donald Trump. And the sun will come up the day after. Okay? So there's going to be some folks to say, look, if, if your person doesn't win, this country as we know it is over. Now, I don't believe that. The sun's going to come up. Now, is, is maybe one candidate's a little bit more optimistic? Maybe, maybe there's a little bit more hope when that sun comes up the next day? But the reality is we still have work to do. Regardless of who the president is, we still have work to do when it comes to life, when it comes to abortion. And so let's get to work. Let's make an effort. Let's love our neighbor. Let's serve well. Let's love our local communities well. That we do have control over. Same conversation I have with my son when he makes a bad decision or when he's got an attitude or when he gets emotional. I'll look at him and say, who has control of your emotions? Who? And his answer always is, I do. Yeah. So we cannot control. Now, we can go vote, but we can't control who's in the Oval Office. But we control, when we wake up in the morning, we control the choices that we make. How we're going to interact with people, the conversations we're going to have. Are we going to love our neighbor or not? We control that. So what are we doing with it? What are we doing with our time? What are we doing with our conversations? I hope we're, we're, we're using our time well. I pray you will. We'll talk to you next week. Long before my first breath.